Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to the two-year anniversary of The Intelligence on Economist Radio. Has it only been two years? Huh. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The rich world is, by now, well aware of the perils of a diet of cheap processed foods. But development in sub-Saharan Africa has outpaced the spread of that kind of awareness. Now, obesity is on the rise, even though undernourishment is still rife. And a new mining project in Greenland will liberate a huge amount of rare earth minerals, needed for all manner of electronics and renewable energy projects. But who will get the spoils? We go digging to find out. First up, though. In their first phone call this week, America's President Joe Biden and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin agreed to extend a nuclear arms treaty between their countries by five years. The pact caps the number of nuclear warheads held by each. Between them, they account for 90% of the world's stock of them. This week's agreement came with little fanfare, a far cry from the paranoia of the 1960s. The streets are jammed. Businessmen trying to get to their families. Panic-stricken people trying to get out of town. Today's status quo looks comparatively stable, but to think the problem is over would be complacent. Last week, a treaty banning the making or even the hosting of nuclear weapons came into force. It was signed by more than 80 countries, but some notable absences from that list are another reason to believe that the world's nuclear order could yet shift. 60 years ago, the big fear was that the whole world would end up arming itself with nuclear weapons. Shashank Joshi is our defense editor. In 1961, President John Kennedy made a famous warning to the United Nations about the prospect of what could happen if weapons did spread so widely and their spread couldn't be controlled. We in this hall shall be remembered either as part of the generation that turned this planet into a flaming funeral pyre or the generation that met its vow to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. The Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which was signed in 1968, which allowed countries access to nuclear technology as long as they didn't use it to build a bomb, largely prevented the uncontrolled spread of nuclear bombs to dozens of countries, as was originally feared. It was essentially a bargain. It said that five countries, America, Britain, Russia, China and France, were the legitimate nuclear weapon states. And as long as they shared civil nuclear technology with everyone else, that all the other countries would forego the right to have the bomb. And that bargain for many years worked. And so 60 years on, how is that treaty holding up? 
surprisingly good in the sense that you have only nine nuclear weapon states, the same number as 25 years ago. Yes, there are several states that didn't sign the NPT, India, Pakistan, Israel, and they all have nuclear weapons alongside North Korea, which pulled out of the treaty. But you don't have countries like Sweden or Germany or Australia wielding nuclear weapons. So the NPT succeeded in an essential way. But I think what we are seeing is that the nuclear order is also in a great deal of trouble. We're seeing China, India, Pakistan, North Korea all expand their arsenals and modernize their arsenals. And there are also some countries, including some very powerful countries, who are seriously exploring nuclear options, including a bomb. Which countries are those? I think we could divide the cast of potential proliferators into sort of two categories. The first would be those with ample means, very advanced nuclear technology, but less ambition, perhaps greater caution. And that would be exemplified by a trio of Asian countries, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. They could all develop a nuclear weapon in relatively short order, given how advanced they are. But of course, they would be quite cautious about doing so. The second category is a group of countries which perhaps have less technology, less know-how, but equally less caution and more ambition. And I would say that those are countries in the Middle East, above all Iran and Saudi Arabia, perhaps even Turkey and Egypt. And in terms of the first group, those with the know-how but without much in the way of ambition, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, there have been plenty of political pressures that, that kept them from advancing. Is the force of, of those pressures not being felt? You're right, Jason. Those countries all did explore nuclear weapons during the Cold War, and America generally quashed those ambitions, in large part by threatening to withdraw its military protection if they continued down that path. I think what's been happening in recent years is that the force of that leverage isn't what it used to be. And let me give you an example of that. In the past, America could deter North Korea from attacking South Korea by saying, if you do that, we'll strike Pyongyang. In other words, South Korea was under America's so-called nuclear umbrella. And America could do that in the knowledge that North Korea couldn't inflict much damage on America in turn. But of course, what's happened is as North Korean missiles have modernized, as their weapons have become more sophisticated, that's no longer true. And now, for America to defend South Korea puts San Francisco, perhaps New York, at risk. And North Korea knows it, and South Korea knows it. And of course, that drives understandable anxieties in South Korea, and perhaps in some places, their own appetite for an indigenous South Korean bomb. And presumably in the second set of countries where those political pressures were never there, those with the ambition but perhaps a, sh a bit short on the know-how, things are even more worrying. Yes, in the Middle East, I think, neither the constraints of liberal democracy nor the depth of alliance with America is as strong. And I think the iconic example of this is Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been profoundly spooked by Iran's nuclear program in recent years. Even if President Biden can resuscitate the nuclear deal with Iran that President Trump abrogated, Saudi Arabia would still think that in 10 or 15 years time, Iran's program would expand again. Now, if Iran did get a bomb, Saudi Arabia would very likely follow suit. And two years ago, Mohammed bin Salman, Saudi Arabia's crown prince, its de facto leader, explicitly said in public as much. So that is no secret. 
But as defined, these are countries that don't have the technological know-how. What power do they have to arm themselves even if they wanted to? Well, Saudi Arabia is an interesting example of the options that countries have. Last year, we saw reports that China was potentially helping Saudi Arabia with uranium facilities, and China has also given Saudi Arabia ballistic missiles. So the question is, uh, as Russia and China become much more powerful players in the nuclear commercial civil nuclear market, does that have knock-on effects for proliferation? And do we see that give countries like Saudi Arabia more options for acquiring nuclear technology to match their rivals like Iran. So the the picture you paint here is a fairly worrying one. Do you think that in the medium, in the longer term, we're getting back to the kind of, of worry that President Kennedy had? It's a concern. Certainly we have new means of catching proliferators as well. But I think the security rivalries and competition that underpin the demand for nuclear weapons, the fear in South Korea and Japan of Chinese and North Korean missiles, the fear in Saudi Arabia of Iran's program, those are intensifying and worsening. And while most of these countries are keeping the option to develop a weapon in abeyance rather than actually acting on it, it's easy to see how a big shock for example, Israeli military strike on Iranian facilities could set off a chain of events that pushed Iran over the edge, that then pushed Saudi Arabia over the edge. We can envisage those sorts of situations, I think, in today's world. And it's something that we just haven't paid as much attention to as we should have done. Shishong, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. A growing number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa are experiencing what's known as the double burden of malnutrition. That's when obesity coexists alongside undernourishment. It's a downside of rapid development, and some places are finding interesting ways to address the problem. Every Wednesday in the villages around Monze in the southern province of Zambia, Women meet up to swap recipes. Avantika Chilkati is an international correspondent at The Economist. It's an incredibly festive occasion. They line up these tables and they pile them up with Tupperware, really a huge number of dishes, and they introduce each dish along with its health benefits. So, so that porridge has groundnut powder and moringa powder. Mm. So... Moringa helps with appetite. And it has medicinal properties. And then they introduced three different types of soya bean sausages, which were apparently to build the family. There was lots of laughter about that one. <laughs> but don't ask too many questions. <laughs> and what is it that took you there besides collecting some recipes for yourself? I went there with officials from the United Nations World Food Programme, which helps to organise the meetups. So this is a complete uh, 
diet, so to speak. Mm. Everything required is here. They said part of the aim is to prevent undernourishment in the community. But the aim is also to prevent obesity. They're trying to show farmers the sorts of feasts that they can produce without going to shops that are stocked up with processed food. Lots of people don't realise this, but obesity and overweight is a problem in sub-Saharan Africa. In Zambia, for example, 35% of women and 20% of men are now overweight, which is defined as having a body mass index over 25. It looks like a lot of the region is going the same way as middle-income South Africa, which development policymakers have worried about for quite a while now. And why are those numbers rising so fast? So in part, rising obesity is the side effect of something good, of economic development. Incomes in the region are rising. Women are getting jobs outside the home, which means they've got less time to cook from scratch. But all of this development also means people are moving to cities. They're taking sedentary jobs and they're getting a taste for junk food. We interviewed Fatima Abdullah, a nutritionist who works at some of the biggest private hospitals in Lusaka, the capital of Zambia. And she sees a lot of patients with conditions that we link to obesity, things like diabetes, high blood pressure, kidney disease, cholesterol. And that is clearly being driven by eating habits. Speaking more for the city, we've got quite a big increase in terms of the availability and the affordability of convenience foods, fast foods and processed foods. What Fatima says is that this is partly down to an increase in the number of shopping malls with affordable fast food outlets. And it's also to do with the kinds of foods that are being sold in supermarkets nowadays. Foods like, you know, biscuits, sugary drinks, chips, chocolates, things that would have only been imported and expensive are now locally made and very, very cheap. And the fact that things are very, very cheap is what's driving the popularity, I guess. Yeah, the thing to remember is that eating a healthy diet is expensive. You probably realise that even if you're sitting in London or New York where a ready-made mac and cheese sachet is going to be a lot cheaper than fresh fruit and veg. And that is really, really exaggerated in sub-Saharan Africa. The nutritious day's food is defined by academics, so with green vegetables, milk, some meat. That actually costs around 70% of the mean daily per capita household income in sub-Saharan Africa. And it's not just affordability. Miss Abdullah, the nutritionist that we interviewed, she also pointed out that there's a lack of awareness about healthy eating. One of the things that I've done is actually written a a Zambian healthy eating book, which I'm trying to distribute as far and wide as I can, because accessibility to information around healthy eating specific to the Zambian diet is very limited here. And all that rising obesity must have knock-on effects. Obesity is obviously bad for health on sort of a personal level. The World Health Organization estimates that 7% of people in Africa had diabetes in 2014, which is up almost 130% from 1980. That's really tragic on a personal level, but things like this also have economic impacts. If a large part of the working age population is unproductive, if they need expensive medical care, the economy also suffers. And what about the conversation that's been going on about sub-Saharan Africa for much longer, about undernourishment? Is that to say that's no longer a concern? Absolutely not. Undernourishment, stunting, being underweight is still a huge problem in the region. About 30% of boys and 20% of girls aged between 5 to 19 in Africa are still underweight. 
What we're seeing is a phenomenon that policymakers call the double burden of malnutrition. That's where undernutrition and obesity coexist within a country, within a community, and sometimes even within one household. The example that a lot of the wonks that I interviewed gave was of the overweight mother who eats junk food to save time, and she has an undernourished child sometimes because she's still relatively badly off. The way to see the relationship between income levels and obesity really is sort of like an inverted U. In sub-Saharan Africa, millions of people have been pulled out of abject poverty, where the big problem is actually getting enough calories to stay alive. But from here, there's going to have to be a very big increase in income for them to actually be able to eat well and stay fit. And in that sense, do rich countries offer a lesson here? I mean, it's a struggle that rich countries know fairly well. When I was speaking to policymakers, to me, the solution, tackling nutrition, means tackling every element of multidimensional poverty. It means changing urban planning, labeling food, educating the public. It also means, in the developing world, getting the private sector on board. These are the businesses that flog a lot of unhealthy packaged food. And perhaps most importantly, it's an attitudes thing. It's a question of people rejecting delicious, locally grown produce like okra as village food, and then buying up packaged food in supermarkets as a symbol of status and of wealth. So it's a very different issue, actually, in the developing world. And what policymakers have to do will also have to be a bit different. Avantika, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jason. Most people had a little chuckle in 2019 when then-President Donald Trump proposed buying Greenland. Essentially, it's a large real estate deal. It's hurting Denmark very badly because they're losing almost $700 million a year carrying. And strategically for the United States, it would be nice. But he had a point. The world's biggest island is rich in rare earth minerals. The territory is home to several valuable mining projects. And one open pit mine is unearthing plenty of political problems. This is a proposed project in the far south of Greenland, near a town called Narsak. Guy Kiddy writes for The Economist. This part of Greenland is full of rare earth metals, which are very interesting for very many reasons. For what reasons? What are they good for? Rare earths are found in all things electronic. Computers, smartphones, white goods. They're throughout the home, they're throughout industry. They're also important in batteries, in self-driving cars, so they will contribute an increasing role in the renewables revolution and the drive to ditch fossil fuels. They're also in weapons, conventional weapons, conventional ballistic weapons, and nuclear ones as well. So there's a slightly nasty side to them. And in any case, Greenland wants to exploit the assets that it has underground. The country's environment ministry has given a tentative go-ahead. Most parliamentarians are in favour of the proposals, but some residents in Greenland aren't so keen on the idea, particularly those who live in the town of Narsak. For a long time, there's been a no-to-uranium lobby, not just in Narsak, but throughout Greenland. This mine is about excavating rare earth metals, but radioactive material will be liberated. Also, according to recent calculations by a Canadian geologist, thorium, which is many times more radioactive than uranium, but these are speculative calculations at the moment. So there are clearly local concerns about opening this mine up, but what about the bigger picture as to who actually owns it and the connection with Denmark? 
Well, Greenland Minerals, which is actually an Australian company, owns the excavation rights. But the largest shareholder in Greenland Minerals is a Chinese company. They only have a small shareholding of around 10%. Now, Denmark, which has jurisdiction over Greenland's foreign affairs and military matters, is quite concerned that these rare earths and potentially the uranium deposits as well stay within the NATO area. If they fall into Chinese hands, for example, then China has a commercial advantage. It also has a military advantage, potentially. We're talking about huge deposits of rare earths here. And although it's probably an over-ambitious estimate, Greenland Minerals reckons that there's enough rare earths in the deposits in this part of Greenland to provide about 15 to 20 percent of what it would take to wean the world fully off fossil fuels to affect the Green Revolution. But if these deposits are so big and so valuable, there are are huge monetary implications of all this. Absolutely. Denmark currently provides about half of Greenland's budget, which is about 600 million US dollars a year. This mine could liberate around 200 million in revenue to the Greenland exchequer each year. So it's a huge chunk of what Denmark is currently supplying. And the thing is that Greenland's two main political parties both want independence from Denmark. To affect that, they're going to have to find a way of making up that 50% of the budget that Denmark currently provides. The options for economic development in Greenland are quite limited. They're limited basically to fishing, to tourism, freshwater sales and mining. And of those four options, mining is by far the most valuable. So Greenland's politicians are quite keen to get this underway. It gives them a good shot at achieving independence in the long term. But I think there'll still be a close relationship with Denmark because Although Greenland wants independence, it still also wants to stay within the NATO area. It doesn't want to fall within the sphere of influence of China, for example. Thanks very much for joining us, Guy. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. That's all for this two-year anniversary episode of The Intelligence. Thanks for listening from all of us. The show's editors, Marguerite Howell and Kim Gittleson, our senior producers, Chris Impey, Hannah Mourinho, and Duncan Barber, our producers, Stevie Hertz and William Warren, assistant producer, Jason Hoskin, our sound engineer, Daniel Lloyd Evans, our social media gurus, Laura Clark and Isabel Owen, and our trainee, Abisoye Oshindairo. And a big thanks from me. See you back here on Monday for the start of year three. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.